The Case for Negotiating with Russia. Keith Gessen. If you want to hear a different perspective on the war in Ukraine, talk to Samuel Charap. A fine-featured Russia analyst with, at 43, a head of gray hair, Charap works at the Rand Corporation, a think tank that has been doing research for the U.S. military, among other clients, since the 1940s. In the self-abnegating architectural spirit of many Washington institutions, it rents several floors of an office tower attached to a mall in Arlington, Virginia, not far from the Pentagon. The mall has a Macy's and a bath and body works, which are not places that Charap likes to go. Charap, who grew up in Manhattan, became interested in Russian literature in high school and then became interested in Russian foreign policy in college, at Amherst. He got a PhD in political science at Oxford and spent time researching his dissertation in both Moscow and Kiev. In 2009, he started working at the Center for American Progress, a liberal think tank in D.C. Russia had just fought a short, nasty war with Georgia, but the incoming Obama administration was hoping to reset relations and find common ground. Charap supported this effort and wrote papers trying to think through a progressive foreign policy for the U.S. in the post-Soviet region. But tensions with Russia continued to increase. In the wake of Russia's annexation of Crimea and incursion into eastern Ukraine, in 2014, Charap wrote a book with the Harvard political scientist Timothy Colton called Everyone Loses about the background to the war. In it, Charap and Colton argue that the US, Europe, and Russia had combined to produce a negative sum outcome in Ukraine. Russia was the aggressor, to be sure, but by asking that Ukraine choose either Russia or the West, the US and Europe had helped stoke the flames of conflict. In the end, everyone lost. Sign up for the daily newsletter. Receive the best of the New Yorker every day in your inbox. Email address. By signing up, you agree to our user agreement and privacy policy and cookie statement. This site is protected by reCAPTCHA and the Google privacy policy and terms of service apply. I first met Charap in the summer of 2017, not long after the book came out, and in the midst of a maelstrom of anger at Russia for its interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Robert Mueller had been appointed as special counsel for the Justice Department, Donald Trump had labeled the investigation a hoax, and Congress was in the process of passing a bipartisan sanctions bill against Russia. Charap was as angry as anyone else about the interference, but he thought the sanctions proposed in the bill were a mistake. The idea of sticks in international relations is not just for beating other countries, he told me at the time. It's for achieving a better outcome. He used the example of the long-standing Iran sanctions, which had finally compelled Iran to come to the negotiating table and vastly limit its nuclear program. The sanctions on Russia, he went on, were not like that. Sanctions are only effective at changing another country's behavior if they can be rolled back, he said. And, because of the measures in this current bill, it's going to be nearly impossible for any president to relieve them. In the following years, as Russia became more and more of a neurologic subject in American politics, Charap continued to travel to Russia, engage with Russian counterparts, and look for ways to lower the temperature of the relationship. Going to Valdai, the annual conference where Vladimir Putin pretends to be a wise czar interested in discoursing with professors on international politics had become somewhat controversial. 
but, before the war began, Charap went to the conference whenever he could, and several times even asked Putin a question. It's my job to understand these people, and I was given first-hand access to them, he said. How can you understand a country if you don't go and talk to the people involved in the decision-making? In the fall of 2021, Charap, along with much of the expert community in D.C., became worried that Russia was planning an invasion of Ukraine. In a piece in Politico that November, he urged the Biden administration to work with Kiev to make at least some nominal concessions to see if the crisis could be defused. Two months later, as the crisis deepened, he wrote another piece for the Financial Times. In this one, he argued that NATO should announce publicly that Ukraine was not seriously being considered for membership. NATO cannot and should not accept being told what to do by Russia, Charap wrote. But Moscow's inflammatory rhetoric should not distract from the fact that NATO is not prepared to offer Ukraine membership. If doing so could avert a war, why not find some way to say out loud what any NATO official would say behind closed doors? When I spoke to Charap around this time, he was freaking out. The disposition of Russian forces, their activities, the fact that blood supplies were being sent to the Russian encampments, none of this was the behavior of an army conducting an exercise. Even more worrisome was the tenor of Russian diplomatic communications. Their demands, not only that Ukraine promised to never join NATO, but also that NATO pull its troops back to their 1997 locations, were simply unrealistic. They're asking the world's most powerful military alliance to strip naked and run laps, he said. But the gun they're holding is to Ukraine's head. Charap estimated that if an invasion was going to happen, it would happen in late February. In late January of 2022, he co-authored an editorial for foreign policy in which he argued that sending anti-tank javelin missiles and anti-aircraft stinger missiles to Ukraine would neither deter Russia from invading nor meaningfully affect the military situation if Russia did invade. He once again urged that diplomacy be given a chance. And then the war began. It turned out that Charap and his co-author were right about Western weapons and deterrence, the Russian army went in despite the javelins and stingers that had been sent to Ukraine by NATO countries, but wrong about their military utility. The Russian army used low-flying helicopters, vulnerable to stinger fire, and sent armored vehicles, in a juicy column, straight down a main road toward Kiev, where they were destroyed. Subsequent studies have pointed to Russian carelessness, timely U.S. intelligence, and, above all, Ukrainian mobility and courage as the prime factors in the debacle of the war's first weeks for Russia. But the weapons helped. Nonetheless, for Charap, there was more that the U.S. might have tried to prevent the fighting. In recent months, as the fighting has gone on and on, he has become the most active voice in the U.S. foreign policy community calling for some form of negotiation to end or freeze the conflict. In response, he has been called a Kremlin mouthpiece, a Russian shill, and a traitor. Critics say he has not changed his opinions in 15 years, despite changing circumstances. But he has continued writing and arguing. This is a five-alarm fire, he said. Am I supposed to walk past the house? Because, as bad as it's been, it could get much, much worse. So far, the most active phase of negotiations to end the war took place in its first two months. During that time, there were numerous meetings between Russian and Ukrainian officials, most notably throughout March, in Turkey. 
at least one rumored proposal coming out of those talks had Ukraine agreeing to not seek NATO membership in exchange for Russia abandoning all the territory it had seized after February 23, 2022. Accounts differ about what happened next. It was not clear that the ever-shifting Russian delegations had Putin's support, nor was it clear that Western countries were willing to provide the sort of security guarantees Ukraine sought in place of NATO membership. Soon these questions became moot. On March 31, Russian troops withdrew from Bucha, Ukrainian soldiers who entered the city discovered mass graves and learned that residents had been tortured and randomly shot. Volodymyr Zelensky called what happened there war crimes and genocide. An early April visit to Kiev from Boris Johnson, then the British Prime Minister, seems to have stiffened Zelensky's resolve. After that, there were still occasional attempts at negotiation and mediation, but it was clear that both sides wanted to see what they could get by continuing the war. In the spring and summer of 2022, Russia re-engaged in the Ukrainian East, trying to make progress in the Donbass region, it managed to level and capture the large port city of Mariupol, connecting the Russian mainland, through occupied Ukrainian territory, to Crimea. In the fall, Ukraine mounted a counter-offensive, which succeeded beyond anyone's expectations. Ukrainian forces overran demoralized Russian troops in the Kharkiv region, they also laid siege to the city of Kherson, forcing a Russian retreat. In the winter, Russia was back on the offensive, occupying, after tens of thousands of casualties, the small city of Bakhmut, in the Donbass. Early this summer, it was Ukraine's turn for another counter-offensive. This one was bolstered by much-publicized Western equipment and training, but so far it has not yielded anything like the successes of last fall. At some point, this counter-offensive will end. The question will then become whether either of the sides is ready for negotiations. Russia has been saying for months that it wants negotiations, but it is not clear that it is ready to make any concessions. Most significantly, Russia has not backed off its demand for recognition of the territories it fake annexed in September 2022, in the words of Olga Oliker of the International Crisis Group. Ukraine has said that it needs to continue fighting so it can expel the occupying forces and make sure that Russia never threatens Ukraine again. The argument in the US has split into two profoundly opposed camps. On the one side are people, not very many, at least publicly, like Charap, who argue that there might be a way to end the war sooner rather than later by freezing the conflict in place and working to secure and rebuild the large part of Ukraine that is not under Russian occupation. On the other side are those who believe that this is no solution and the war must be fought until Putin is soundly defeated and humiliated. As the defense intellectual Elliot A. Cohen put it, in May, in The Atlantic, Ukraine must not only achieve battlefield success in its upcoming counteroffensives, it must secure more than orderly Russian withdrawals following ceasefire negotiations. To be brutal about it, we need to see masses of Russians fleeing, deserting, shooting their officers, taken captive, or dead. The Russian defeat must be an unmistakably big, bloody shambles. The arguments seem to be based, ultimately, on three kinds of disagreement. One is about the timing and meaning of negotiations. In a foreign policy piece, last fall, Cherub's Rand colleagues Raphael Cohen, Elliot's son, as it happens, and John Gentile argued that any push by the US for negotiations would send a series of signals, none of them good. As Raphael Cohen put it to me recently, you're basically telling the Russians, just wait us out. 
You're sending a message to the Ukrainians and to the rest of our allies, the United States will put up a good fight for a little while, but in the end we'll walk away. And you're telling the American public that we're not really committed to seeing this through to the end. Cohen added that he would feel differently if the Ukrainians no longer wanted to fight or, better yet, the Russians admitted defeat, the bad guys have a choice in this, too. You have to get the Russians to a place where they view that they can't win. Then we have something to talk about. Charap thinks this is a misunderstanding of what negotiations are and what they signal. Diplomacy is not the opposite of coercion, he said. It's a tool for achieving the same objectives as you would using coercive means. Many negotiations to end wars have taken place at the same time as the war's most fierce fighting. He pointed to the Korean armistice of 1953, neither side acknowledged the other's claims, but they agreed to stop fighting to negotiate a peace deal. That peace deal never came, but, 70 years later, they are still not fighting. That armistice required more than 500 negotiation sessions. In other words, it would be better to start talking. Another disagreement centers on the possibility of a decisive Ukrainian battlefield victory. Charap believes that neither side has the resources to knock the other out of the fight entirely. Other analysts have also voiced this opinion, most notably General Mark Milley, the chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, who in a controversial comment last November compared the situation with the stalemate that prevailed toward the end of the First World War and suggested that it may be time to seek a negotiated solution. But the other side of this debate has been more vocal. They see a highly motivated Ukrainian army, supported by a highly motivated populace. They point to the relative cheapness, to the U.S., of a war that pins down one of its major adversaries. And they believe that, given enough time and enough Western weapons and training, Ukraine could take back a fair amount, if not all, of its territory, sever the land bridge to Crimea, and get close enough to Crimea to deter any future Russian military operations. The final disagreement concerns Putin's intentions. The fight to the end camp believes that, if Putin is not decisively defeated, he will continue attacking Ukraine. And some believe that if not stopped in Ukraine, as he was not stopped in Chechnya, Georgia, or Syria, he will keep going to Moldova, the Baltics, Poland. They believe that European security is at stake. Charap, of course, disagrees. He believes that it is possible to make a ceasefire sticky by including inducements and punishments, mostly through sanctions, and by monitoring the situation closely. As for the view that Putin is bent, Hitler-like, on unceasing expansion, Charap is cautiously skeptical, we have to admit that this is a more unpredictable actor than we thought. So while I'm not prepared to accept the Hitler narrative about how far his ambitions extend beyond Ukraine, I don't think that we can rule it out. But ambition is one thing, capability is another. Even if Putin wanted to keep going, Charap said, he doesn't have the means to do it, as this war has amply shown. To Charap, the strategic defeat of Russia has already taken place. It took place in the first months of the war, when Russian aggression and Ukrainian resistance helped galvanize a united European response. Their international reputation, their international economic position, these ties with Europe that had been constructed over decades, literally, physically constructed, were rendered useless overnight, Charap said. The failure to take Kiev was the decisive blow. Their regional clout, the flight of talent, the strategic consequences have been huge, by any measure.
And, from a U.S. perspective, Charap argues, any gains during the past 16 months have been marginal. A weakened Russia is good, he said. But a totally isolated, rogue Russia, a North Korea Russia, not so much. A year ago, Russia was not deliberately targeting civilian infrastructure, now it regularly bombs Ukraine's energy grid and port facilities. With every day, the chances of an accident or an incident that brings NATO directly into the conflict increase. Charap is asking just how much that risk is worth. It's not necessarily that I think Ukraine needs to make concessions, he said. It's that I don't see the alternative to that eventually happening. Earlier this year, Charap presented his position on the war at a security conference in the Estonian capital of Tallinn. During a hostile question-and-answer session, Edward Lucas, a former Economist editor, accused Charap of West-splaining, and James Scher, of the famed international think-tank Chatham House, asked how he could be so sure Ukraine wouldn't win the war outright. But the toughest question came from the Ukrainian activist Alina Halushka. You are speaking a lot about the cost of fighting, the line of fighting here and there, she said, in a strong but clear accent. But what is your analytical perspective on the cost of occupation? Because if you take a look at what is happening, at all of the deoccupied territories, the patterns there are very similar. There are big mass graves, torture chambers, filtration camps, mass deportations, including the deportations of kids. When Halushka concluded her remarks and sat down, the audience applauded. Charap answered the other questions he'd been asked, but avoided responding directly to this one. When prodded by Halushka and the moderator, he said, I don't know exactly how to answer that question, except to say that of course I recognize there are horrible war crimes being committed under areas under Russian occupation. And it's ultimately for the Ukrainian government to decide which is worse, the casualties that could occur as a result of the continued fighting or the brutality of the continued Russian occupation of Ukrainian land. Charap seemed uncharacteristically flustered. I mean, I don't know quite more what more to say to answer the question, he said again. It was the question, the tragic question, of how to think of the people who would be left behind if the line of contact were to freeze somewhere close to its current position. If the fighting went on, Ukrainian soldiers would die, if the fighting ceased, Ukrainian citizens would be trapped under a vicious and despotic regime. I recently spoke with the Kyiv-based journalist Leonid Shvets, whom I have found, over the years, to have a knack for pithily formulating the views of the Ukrainian mainstream. He told me that conversations in which Americans came up with scenarios for Ukraine to surrender drove him up a wall. Why don't you surrender to the Chinese? He said. Give them Florida. You have lots of states, what's one state less? Florida, of course, was a complicated example. Or, if you're so eager to make a deal with the Russians, why don't you give them some of your land? Give them Alaska. He thought that anything short of total defeat for Putin would just mean that the war would start up again. We went through this already in 2014, he said. Here's the problem, he continued. If we freeze the situation where it now is, not along Ukraine's internationally recognized border but along whatever line the front happens to be at, then we acknowledge that internationally recognized borders are just a kind of fiction, which you can ignore. That's a very bad lesson. 
and, second, if we put the borders in this new place, then we're in a situation where this new border is worth even less than the internationally recognized border. Maybe a new military operation will move it even further, move it over here, or move it over there. So at that point it is just totally without meaning. Schwetz acknowledged that people in Ukraine were exhausted after a year and a half of war. No question, every day the war goes on is, for us, specific people who are lost, and specific houses that are destroyed. Absolutely. But we are not yet ready for defeat. He went on, there may come a point where we need to negotiate. But from where we are right now, that point is not visible to me. There are dissenting voices within Ukraine, but they are seldom heard from in public. One former official, who asked that we disguise his identity, told me, the dialogue is not just toxic. If you are not jumping up and down with the mainstream, then you are an enemy. The former official was not an enemy, but he did blame the Zelensky administration for its light-hearted and irresponsible attitude toward the Russian troop buildup in 2021. The former official was getting his family out of the country and making preparations for what he believed was an imminent attack. Meanwhile, Zelensky was telling people to remain calm and citing Ukraine's sovereign rights. This, the former official said, was a grave miscalculation. When there's a crazy person next to you with a Kalashnikov, you don't start talking to him about the UN Charter. The former official believes that the Istanbul talks were the best chance at a more or less stable peace. Back then Bakhmut was a beautiful city, he said. Mariupol was under Ukrainian control. But now there is no win-win solution any longer, he said. Someone will have to lose. He hoped it would be Russia. But he feared it could be Ukraine. I asked him when public opinion might begin to turn. When every single person knows someone who has been killed or wounded, he replied. The country was getting there. For Charap, the Ukrainian position on when to stop fighting is decisive, but it's an evasion of responsibility to pretend that the U.S. can't have an opinion on the matter. You have to do this with the Ukrainians, he said. You can't do it to the Ukrainians. But to suggest that we have no ability to influence them in any way is disingenuous. Like, we feel it's okay to advise them about everything under the sun, but not war termination? Charles Kupchin, a professor of international affairs at Georgetown who served on the National Security Council staff in the Clinton and Obama administrations, goes further. Fighting for every last inch of Ukrainian territory, he told me, is morally justified. It's legally justified. But I'm not sure that it makes a lot of strategic sense from Ukraine's perspective, or from our perspective, or from the perspective of the people in the global south who are suffering food and energy shortages. He said that the U.S. administration needs to let the Ukrainian counteroffensive play out. But at the end of this year, or maybe early in 2024, it will have to talk with Zelensky about negotiations. I wouldn't say, you do this or we're going to turn off the spigot. But you sit down and you have a searching conversation about where the war is going and what's in the best interest of Ukraine, and you see what comes out of that discussion. Of course, in the wake of everything the world has witnessed since February of 2022, this is easier said than done. The debate in the US over Russia and Ukraine has become one of the most vicious foreign policy disputes in years. 
It has come to resemble the debate over Iran policy that we were having in the 2010s, Emma Ashford, a senior fellow at the Stimson Center and a longtime critic of U.S. hawkishness toward Russia, told me. It became less a debate about actual policy than a debate where people were very quick to call names, sling dirt, accuse people of being in league with foreign interests. In the pages of Foreign Affairs, the arguments are polite, but in the wilds of Twitter, things get ugly. Ashford said, there's a lot of emotion. This is a major war. Thousands and thousands of people have died. It's barbaric, and people get very emotionally involved with their positions. Emotional intensity is also, she added, a useful tactic for the hawks. It can be quite an effective way to shut down discussions over negotiations, to argue that it's a betrayal of Ukraine, that it's going to get people killed, that it's what Russia wants. Rajan Menon, the director of the Grand Strategy Program at Defense Priorities, a think tank that advocates for a more restrained U.S. foreign policy, is a longtime analyst of Russian affairs. He's visited Ukraine several times since the war began and written extensively on possible solutions to the conflict. He thinks Cherub's prescriptions for an armistice are premature, that there is not yet enough will on either side to stop the fighting, but he is dismayed by the rhetorical atmosphere in the U.S. There are people who are looking with a good-faith effort to try to see if there's a way out of this box, he told me. And for their trouble, they've basically been lambasted as appeasers or sympathetic to Putin and so on. This has got to stop. Charap is clearly bothered by some of the vitriol that's been directed at him, but he chalks up the intensity of the debate to the barbarity of the Russian military. I need to keep doing my job, he said, which is to think and analyze and propose. In just the last few weeks, as the Ukrainian counteroffensive continued to make agonizingly slow progress, the conversation moved closer to Charap than it has in months. In mid-August, a Washington Post article revealed that U.S. intelligence assessed that Ukraine would not be able to reach the key city of Melitopol during this offensive, and Politico quoted a U.S. official wondering whether Milley had been right back in November when he suggested that it may be time to seek a diplomatic solution. Congressional support, which aside from the Trumpian right had been fairly unstinting, has begun to waver. Is this more stalemate? The Republican Congressman Andy Harris, a member of the far-right Freedom Caucus and a co-chair of the Congressional Ukraine Caucus, asked constituents at a town hall meeting in mid-August. Should we be realistic about it? I think we probably should. Some have pushed back on this analysis. The counteroffensive is not yet over, and there is a possibility that it will yet surprise everyone. It's been a miracle, Olga Oliker, of the International Crisis Group, said of the successful Ukrainian resistance. Maybe there'll be another miracle. The White House, at least publicly, has been of the same view. We do not assess that the conflict is a stalemate. The National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters last week. Charap isn't ready to call time on the Ukrainian counteroffensive either but he continues to worry that the administration is being too cautious about starting work on a diplomatic solution. Most people now recognize that Plan A isn't working, he said. But that doesn't mean they're prepared to discuss Plan B. What would a Plan B look like? It would be a diplomatic strategy, he said. It would be thinking about the choreography of how you engage. 
It would be the searching conversation with Ukraine and similar conversations with NATO allies. It would be trying to get Putin to appoint a representative who has authority to negotiate and appointing such a representative on the U.S. side with Ukrainian support. This is the kind of pre-negotiation interaction that will be necessary to lay the groundwork, Charop said, and then you actually devote resources inside the government to thinking through the practicalities and getting the right pieces in place. He admits that such an initiative could fail, the only way you really can know is if we actually try and it doesn't work. You haven't lost anything if you do that. In Cherup's view, the risks of not trying are higher than the risks of trying. Every day, on the front lines of the biggest war in Europe since 1945, young men and women lose their lives. Many more will, before this is over. That's one thing about which everyone is certain. Diamond Suit